0: At the grand old age of 127, Sarah finally dies. The family are in Hittite country at the time of their loss. And not owning any land, Abraham needs somewhere special to bury his beloved wife. Clearly well respected among his neighbours, Abraham is offered the choice of any tomb he likes in which to lay Sarah to rest. He seems to have his eye on one already, and asks if they will put his case to the owner as he's prepared to pay the full asking price. The owner is standing within earshot, and offers Abraham his cave for no payment. Abraham refuses to accept a freebie, and the owner finally accepts a price of £10 of silver for the site. The tomb is near Hebron, not far from the great oak where Abraham and Sarah once lived as Abraham and Sarai. Modern-day Bible tourists believe the burial site is the Cave of the Patriarchs which can still be found in the heart of Hebron on Palestine's West Bank. Once money has changed hands, Abraham buries his wife, and it is now that he decides to act on his plan to find a wife for his son. Before he does so, he chooses an unusual technique to make his servant promise that the woman will come from Abraham's tribe back in the Old Country he asks the trusted manager of his household to cup his testicles while promising to carry out the old man's wishes. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, Episode 7, A Hand Under the Thigh. A few notes before we push on into the epic landscape that is the book of Genesis. Holy Bible is a Bible podcast where we head for the hills, leaving the religion back on the driveway. The thinking is that there are plenty of podcasts that tell you what to believe, and very few that actually tell listeners what lies within the leatherette cover of a Bible. So, apologies if you were expecting a traditional Bible study. Bear with us. We believe that the Bible is a book for everyone, not just the religious. The Bible I use as reference is the new international version, UK edition, published by Zondervan. Any comments are much welcomed. Visit holybible.com and let us know what you think. And so back to the grabbing hand in the region of Abraham's genitals. What in the name of all things holy is going on? This is no one-off either. Later on in Genesis, Abraham's grandson Jacob makes his son Joseph place a hand under his thigh to promise that he will bury him in Canaan rather than Egypt. But why would Old Testament tribal leaders be so keen to have other men grapple with their reproductive organs? One answer may be because the testicles contain the future children that a man might one day father and that these act as witnesses to whatever is being promised. Placing the hand under the thigh might also be a euphemism for something else. The thigh in question might actually be the penis itself. As Abraham introduces circumcision and sees this as a physical sign of his covenant agreement with God, He may want his servant to be reminded of this as he makes his promise. The solemn oath made while another person's hand is gripping a man's testicles gives us the word testify. It comes from the Latin testes, a word that also gives us testimony and even testament. The hand under the thigh is a potentially eye-watering manoeuvre that is not currently in use in any modern churches or law courts while giving testimony. A more prosaic explanation is that testifying comes from the Latin word testis, meaning witness. This in turn comes from an earlier word meaning three, a good number of people to have as backup in a dispute. The servant who Abraham chooses to find his son a wife doesn't seem overly confident in his mission. He asks what he should do in the eventuality that the chosen girl refuses to return with him to Canaan. Should he fetch Isaac and bring him back east? Under no circumstances is he to take Isaac, Abraham tells him. This might be for a number of reasons. Firstly, they don't worship God in Mesopotamia, so Isaac will be very much on his own as a believer. Secondly, Abraham felt called to Canaan and believes that God promised him a vast number of descendants here. Why then would he want Isaac to return to his home country? Lastly, he can't risk Isaac having his head turned by the wrong woman and ruining the program. Abraham promises that God will send the servant an angel who will help him find Isaac a wife. If he's unsuccessful and the girl won't come back with him, he is to return empty-handed, but on no account should he bring Isaac anywhere near the land where Abraham was born. The man places his hand under Abraham's thigh and promises to do what he has been asked. Dutifully, Abraham's envoy sets off for Mesopotamia, bringing with him ten camels laden with treasure as well as several attendants. Their destination is the town of Nahor, possibly named after Abraham's brother Nahor who lives here. The caravan makes landfall around sundown and the servant kneels his camels by a well so they can drink. Early evening is when the local women come to the well for water. The man prays that one will come not only to offer him refreshment but will offer to look after his camel's needs as well. Should a girl do this, he prays that she might be the one for Isaac, as she has indirectly shown kindness towards Abraham. Sure enough, Rebecca, the beautiful granddaughter of Abraham's brother, arrives on cue. She not only fetches the servant a drink when he asks her, she offers to bring water for all his camels. Excited that Rebecca might be the one, the servant watches her closely as she waters his pack animals. Seemingly convinced, he takes a gold nose ring and some bangles from his saddlebag to show that he isn't any old traveller and presents them to her. He asks Rebecca who her parents are and whether there might be room for him to stay. Not only is there plenty of room for the visitors and abundant feed for the animals too, Rebecca is a blood relative of Abraham. Clearly overjoyed at how things have turned out, the servant bows down and worships Abraham's God. For him, there is no doubt that the god his master worships really does exist if he can pull off near-impossible stunts like this one. Rebecca runs off to tell her mother about their visitor from Canaan. When her brother Laban sees the gold adorning his sister, he's keen to know more. He makes sure the camels are unloaded and fed, the men's feet washed and food laid before them. However... The servant refuses to eat before he has announced his business and gives a succinct account of Abraham's life. God has blessed him, he says. He has acquired great wealth and he and Sarah had a son in their old age who is set to inherit everything. The servant adds that he has been forbidden to find a wife for Isaac back in Canaan. He repeats the conversation he had with Abraham about the eventuality of not finding the perfect bride. How he was promised that an angel would lead him to her and how he will not be held responsible should the girl refuse to come back to Canaan with him. He then explains the remarkable events that took place by the well, telling his hosts that Rebecca appeared with water even before he had finished praying. It's almost as if the servant is having a religious experience, He began his journey full of doubts. Now he is excited to tell the others how Abraham's God appears to have been behind everything that has happened to him. Laban and his father Bethuel appear convinced that God must be involved in something as impressive as this. They immediately agree to let Rebekah travel back to Canaan to become Isaac's wife and the servant is so grateful to God that he bows down to the ground again. He then lays out some especially fine gifts for the girl, as well as some treasures for her family. The next day, the servant wants to return to Abraham, but Rebecca's people ask for another ten days to say their goodbyes. Selling a daughter may seem barbaric, but in Abraham's time, women are seen as property, and this request for a stay of execution is actually quite humane. However, the servant is immovable. God is at work here and he needs to get back. Rebecca is fetched to see how she feels about the situation and she seems ready and willing to saddle up and begin her new life right away. Rebecca travels with her nurse and as the entourage sets off, Her family say a prayer of blessing. It's unclear who they are praying to, but they ask that her offspring number into the thousands and that they conquer the cities of their enemies. By now, Isaac has moved away from the Negev and is living near the well which Hagar named while she was pregnant with Ishmael and all alone in the desert. He's in a field meditating and when he looks up, he sees a camel train approaching. Isaac has obviously caught Rebecca's eye and she gets down from her camel wanting to know who he is. When she is told that this is the man who she will be marrying, she covers her face with her veil. It is customary at the time for brides to hide their faces from their future husbands. The Bedeken ceremony where the groom lifts the bride's veil during Jewish weddings comes from Rebecca covering her face with her veil when she first sees Isaac. Clearly pleased with God's choice for a wife, Isaac takes Rebekah to his mother's tent and marries her. This isn't necessarily a ceremony and might simply mean that the two of them consummate their relationship. Genesis adds that Isaac loves Rebekah and she brings him much needed comfort after his mother's death. It's easy to think of Isaac as Abraham's only son, but he has plenty of other children and grandchildren. After Isaac's mother Sarah dies, Abraham remarries. He fathers another six sons before dying at the grand old age of 175, when he is buried next to his beloved wife. Of these other children, none really bother the Bible other than Midian, whose descendants become a powerful opposition to Israel. Abraham leaves everything he owns to Isaac. While he is alive though, he gives generously to the sons of his other wives and concubines and sends them away to the east out of Isaac's way. Once Abraham is dead, his two eldest sons Ishmael and Isaac unite to bury him in the family plot and the Bible relates that God blesses Isaac. Meanwhile Ishmael lives to be 137 years old and has 12 sons each of whom becomes a tribal warlord. None of them make a major impact on the Bible as either heroes or villains, and they settle somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula, fighting against all the other tribes who they live amongst. Being sold as a wife to a distant relative in a far-off country might have had disastrous consequences for Rebecca. Happily, Isaac and his new wife love each other despite Rebecca's inability to bear children, an irony given her family's prayer that she will become the mother of thousands. Isaac prays about the situation and his prayers appear to be answered. God tells Rebecca that two nations are in her womb but will grow up divided. One will be more powerful, he says, and the older one will serve the younger. The babies fight even while they are in the womb. In some Bible translations, Rebecca's pregnancy is so painful that she begs God to kill her. The first twin to emerge is covered in a mat of red hair, and so they call him Esau, which means hairy. The second child comes out with his hand grasping his brother's heel, suggesting that the two will always be competing. This baby is named Jacob which can mean someone who grasps another person's heel, but also, more ominously, it means deceiver. It's not a great name for someone on whose shoulders the hope of an entire nation rests, but one of the teachings underlined by the Bible is that even heroes have flaws. Another is that God rewards people not because they deserve it, but because he is good. Though he doesn't have to wait anywhere near as long as his father to have children, it's still twenty years until Isaac becomes a father. He is forty when he marries Rebecca, and sixty when his twins are born. Repeatedly tricked by his cleverer brother and a mother who clearly sees him as second best, Esau gets a bum deal compared to Jacob. Still. He grows up to be a skilful hunter with a love of the great outdoors. Meanwhile Jacob prefers to stay at home and play into his mother's schemes to get him an advantage over his older brother. It is when Esau returns home from an unsuccessful hunting trip, starving and desperate for something to eat that he asks Jacob for some stew. Rather than offer his famished brother his food, Jacob makes him an outrageous deal to sell him his birthright in exchange for the meal. In Bible times, the birthright almost always belongs to the older son and involves him inheriting twice as much as any of his brothers. Clearly placing the immediate needs of his stomach over his future financial security or genuinely believing that his birthright is worthless when he's about to die from hunger, Esau readily signs over his inheritance for a hearty dinner. Also known as primogeniture, birthrights in the Bible are seen as a gift from God. In treating his so casually, Genesis paints a picture of Esau as a shallow, careless character who lives from hand to mouth. He fails to grasp the spiritual significance of what he has done, nor how this might offend God. It's a poor start for Esau. And from this point on, he and his people sit outside the locus of power and influence as God begins creating his nation. The apple doesn't appear to fall far from the tree. And when famine strikes Canaan, Isaac moves his family in search of food south to the kingdom of Gerar. Sarah is dead leaving Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah and their two sons as the world's sole flag bearers for God. There's no love lost between Jacob and Esau. Jacob has already robbed his brother of his inheritance. And with the full backing of his mother, their playbook of scheming, dirty tricks and foul play continues. As ever, Esau is the stooge, and this time Isaac is betrayed too as his wife and son begin to put in place one of the most audacious cons in the Bible. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook or send feedback to contact at holybible.com.